This is the second week of our series, Brick and Mortar. And in this series, we're exploring our foundation as a church. Uh, We're looking at it brick by brick. You might be wondering, why? Why are we doing this? In our previous series, Making Sense of Jesus, we looked at how Jesus makes himself known to us so that others can make sense of him through us. And as Jesus does this, he engages all of our senses. It's a beautiful reality. But the question is, how do we stay in this reality? You know, we, we get sent out into a world that isn't an easy one. You know, the gospel can be ridiculed, our faith can teeter, our hope can falter, and often it's easier to remain quiet uh, than to witness. It's easier to blend in than to stand out. It's easier to relegate faith to a corner of our lives rather than letting it envelop our entire lives. When everything we know in the world presses against what we know about Jesus, and even when more things press against Jesus being made known through us, how are we to remain in this reality of who Jesus is and what he wants to accomplish in our lives? And so that's why we're in this series. We're examining our foundation, but we're also looking at the brick and the mortar that God has provided for us to build upon that foundation. Because God has not left us ill-equipped for the here and now. And last week, Amanda Russell Jones uh, looked at our foundation, Jesus Christ himself. Our entire lives are built upon this foundation, and the things that we build that are not built upon this foundation will be swept away in eternity. They won't last. They'll be shaken away like dust. And so if we're going to build our lives wisely, we build them upon this unshakable foundation, Jesus Christ. But God has also given us what we need in order to build wisely. And so this week, we're applying our mortar. We're looking at the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is our mortar. And so here's the big idea I want us to explore this morning. The Holy Spirit seals us into Jesus. And when we're sealed into Jesus, the Spirit empowers us to proclaim life in an antagonistic world. So open your Bibles with me. We're heading into John's Gospel, chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen and you can follow along there. John 16, verse 1. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You're at a friend's house, but not just a friend, a mentor. And not just a mentor, there's something more to this person. This person has changed you. You're not the same person as you were before meeting them. And there's something more to who this person is in your life. And since meeting them, your life revolves around theirs. And very few moments have been spent apart. And you're together, and you're enjoying a meal, but the feeling in the room begins to change. Your friend starts talking, and what started out as a celebration gets more serious. And the room, it starts to get somber. And as they share more, your heart begins to sink and sink and sink. And in our passage today, this is exactly what's happening to the disciples. Jesus has changed their lives. He's the disciples' friend. He's their rabbi. He's their teacher. He's their Lord. And they're celebrating the Passover, but suddenly the mood in the room changes. 
Jesus, he warns them that there's going to be this strong pull to fall away from him. Why? Well, he's going to be crucified, and they're going to flee for their lives. But the risk of falling away from Jesus isn't just at the Mount of Crucifixion. Jesus goes on to warn his followers, you're going to be cast out of your synagogues. And here he's speaking about their lives after the resurrection. Their former lives, they're going to be lost. They will lose the comfort they had. They will be cast out of the religious institutions that they called home. They will become outsiders in their own society. And it gets heavier still. Jesus says, and you're going to be killed. And the people who kill you, they're going to think they're doing a service to God. And if the disciples want to follow Jesus, it means they will share in his suffering and his death. And undoubtedly, this would have been too much to take in. This is a lot to take in. No wonder Jesus says, I didn't tell you this stuff before because you wouldn't have followed, but I'm telling you now uh, to prepare you. And the disciples, they're trying their best to understand, but they don't fully. But then Jesus says something that would cause the room to completely stand still. Verses 5 and 6, I've been with you, but I'm leaving. The impact of these words was heavy upon the disciples. Verse 6, sorrow filled their hearts. The risk of falling away, the the risk of being a social outcast, the risk of death. These things are on the horizon, and Jesus says, I'm going away. What chance of survival do they have without Jesus? The pressures we face are different, but they still cause us the same amount of turmoil today. The pressures, they can cause us to come undone. What if our faith conflicts with our day-to-day work? What if faith means enduring a difficult relationship with patience intact? What if sharing your faith puts you on the outside of a friend group? What if faith conflicts with your sexual appetite? What if faith puts you at odds with family members? What if others who identify with your faith embarrass you? What if faith causes people to misunderstand you and label you and attach these labels to you like regressive or bigot? This is the world Jesus sends us out into, and then he says, I'm going away. What chance of survival would we have out there without him? Of course, the answer is none. The disciples will fall away. For a time, at least, they can't survive without Jesus. As Jesus heads to the cross, they run to preserve their lives. They all abandon him. You know, Jesus, he resurrects, but their faith lies dormant until then. In those three dark days between his death and his resurrection, they learn how impossible it is to survive in the world without Christ's presence. They hide and they cling to self-preservation. When Jesus, though, when he says he's going back to the Father, he doesn't have his death in mind. And he doesn't even have his resurrection in mind. He has his ascension in mind. Jesus says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's to your advantage that I go away. Of course, this, if we're honest, sounds totally odd. If you're exploring faith, if you're asking really good questions about if Jesus is really who he claimed to be, or if you're wondering if the cost of following him will really be worth it, wouldn't it be really nice if Jesus was here 
to answer your questions, like have a QA. and a uh, In a way, you know, you've heard about an incredible meal, the canard de noshi at Chambar, you know, and uh, you desire a taste, but the people around you are saying, no, 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 just close your eyes and imagine it with faith and taste it with faith. It's confusing. You know, you want to taste and see if Jesus is really good, if he really is as good as people claim. And it seems like it would have been an advantage if Jesus stuck around to help people out with that. Because if he was here, you could travel to where he is and ask him some questions. But beneath this is an assumption. You assume that if you could see Jesus physically, it would make that step of faith easier. But even when Jesus was physically present, even when people could hear him preach about the kingdom in person, even when people witnessed him doing miraculous healings, they still didn't believe. His presence didn't negate the need for faith in who he is. Now, if you follow Jesus, and you really had to choose, like I put a would you rather before you. Would you rather have Jesus physically present, or receive the Holy Spirit. You, like, if we're being good Christians, like, we know we're supposed to say Holy Spirit, but, like, isn't there something in your gut that's like, Jesus present? Like, that's just a no-brainer. Uh, like, imagine having Jesus, Almighty God, the author of life in human form as your physical friend. Imagine being like the disciples. Every day you follow Jesus in the streets. You hear him preach about the kingdom. You're in awe as he works miracles. You are astonished as demons are cast out. You know, you hear him teach things sometimes that you don't understand, but then he takes you aside and explains the secrets of the kingdom. And you you eat together and you laugh together and you cry together and you can see his face. Who doesn't want that? But what makes our desire to have Jesus present any different than the person who doesn't yet believe in him to have him present? You know, compared Jesus to the Canard and Noshi at Chambar once again. Uh, we're proclaiming that we've had it. We're proclaiming that we've had a taste of it. But not physically. We've had a taste in faith. Yet, even in faith, we know that it's good. And so we proclaim, we've tasted it. This is good. You need to have this. And that's why we want Jesus physically present, because we desire him, we love him, and we want more of him. We've had a taste, and we know it's just a taste of how good it will actually be. But please hear me. If you believe in Jesus and desire Jesus to be physically present, it's because the Spirit is abiding in you. It's not a chicken or the egg situation. The Spirit precedes your love for Jesus and gives birth to your love for Jesus. You would not long for Jesus to be here if it weren't for the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And if you truly desire to know if Jesus is really who he claimed to be, it's only because the Spirit is at work in your life, wooing you and calling you and encouraging you to take that step of faith. See, both of these reactions are only possible, this desiring of Jesus to be present, because Jesus left and sent the Spirit. That's the advantage of him going away. It brings about the promise that he talks about in verse 7, that Jesus will send our helper, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit totally changes our hearts in relation to Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 
God's love has been poured into our hearts. What Paul means is the love of God or loving God has been poured into our hearts as a gift from the Spirit. You don't muster up your own love for God. Because left to your own devices, you'll find other things far more desirable than God. Safety, comfort, power, attention, whatever it is you crave. And you'll choose these things time and time again. That's what the season of Lent is all about, is recognizing that these things exist in our lives that we turn to rather than making space and time for Jesus. But If you long for Jesus because you love him, it's because the Spirit is at work in your life, illuminating your mind, opening your eyes to see his beauty, and the Spirit fills you with the love that exists between him and the Father and the Son. The Spirit is God's love imparted to you. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And just as faith is a gift, loving God is a gift. If you lack it, you ask for it. It's that simple. Because God is that good. And so Jesus departing, it's not that it creates a void. He's not absent. No, his departing actually makes him all the more present. By departing, he's increased in presence. He's sent his spirit. We're not disadvantaged at all. It's actually to our advantage because the Holy Spirit is our helper in the world. The Holy Spirit is our helper. The Holy Spirit, to be clear, is not an energy force. The Holy Spirit is not the human spirit awakened. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. God, three in one. But how do we get there from this passage? Well, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is our paraclete. That's the Greek word, paraclete. But that can't be applied to an object. That's a, it's a, a word for a person. And it means helper. The Spirit is our helper. But what sort of help does the Spirit give us? That's the question we want to know because this help is supposed to be to our advantage. How is this help to our advantage? Stay with me here. When Adam was alone in the garden, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. We don't want to misunderstand what God's saying here. He's not declaring that Adam will have a subservient helper, you know, because more often than not in the Old Testament, uh, the word helper appears in reference to God, like Psalm 115, the Lord is my help, my helper. So the way in which Eve helps Adam then is a reflection of how God helps us all. This is her unique role as an image bearer of God. It's not demeaning or subservient. It's actually glorifying to God. She's revealing a part of God's character. And this, you know, kind of surprises us a little bit because often shallow stereotypes are cast. You know, man helps woman. He carry club, hunt food, open jar, save damsel, uh, carry luggage, kill spiders. (laughs) No, Julia does that. Uh, Yes, like... Man will help woman in in some capacity. Uh, But it's woman who appears in the garden to make God's help more visible to man. What does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? Where am I taking this? Helper, paraclete. It means one who appears in another's behalf. And it also means one who is called uh, to someone's aid. So the Spirit is someone who appears on another's behalf for the sake of our help. The the Spirit appears on Jesus' behalf. The Spirit is Jesus' presence 
here. Jesus goes away so that he can be with you always. And this is only true if Jesus is not bound by geography. If Jesus remained incarnated, he would be constrained by space and time. And the lineup would be longer than most of us have patience for, to be honest. Like, I can't wait more than 10 minutes at Chipotle. Otherwise, I go somewhere else. If you told me the lineup to see Jesus was like six years, you know, and 10 minutes, I would probably pass. This would be worse than Disney, you know, like in spring break. But because the Father and the Son send the Spirit, Jesus' promise is made true to us all. Jesus can say with authority and truth in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always. I am with you always to the end of the earth. But similar to the creation of woman in the garden, the Spirit comes to aid us, to help us, to support us, to encourage us. Because God knows that it is not good for humanity to be alone. And if this was true before the fall, how much more is it true after the fall? In a broken world, how much more do we need a helper suitable for us? We cannot survive in the world without the Spirit of God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit is not optional help. God knows that what we face in the world can effortlessly overcome us. God knows how fragile our faith can be. God knows, God knows, God knows what you're facing and how you feel like it could overtake you at any moment. Yet God declares that our weakness is not a hindrance in his kingdom but the very way into it. And that we need help in our weakness because we are not strong. And God is our helper. He doesn't stand far off and say, help thyself. You fi figure it out. God comes to us. He sent his spirit and he says, let me do this with you. Let me help you. And so the spirit sustains us in our walk and carries us through into eternity. We've seen from the very beginning of creation that God does not desire humanity to be alone, but we also see from the very beginning of creation that marriage has always just been a picture into our relationship with God. Which means this, every, if you have the Spirit in your life, everything you face in your life, everything you face in this world, you face as the spouse of Christ. Because the Spirit weds us to Christ. The Spirit seals us in that relationship because of the Spirit we love Christ. And so the Spirit is with you, helping you through daily struggles. The Spirit supports you when your strength fails. The Spirit guides you when you don't know the way. And more importantly, the Spirit is always making you one with Christ. And this means it does not matter what your relationship status is, whether you're married or single or divorced or widowed. It doesn't matter. You are married to Christ. Because the Spirit has made you a part of the church, the bride of Christ. Which means God rejoices over you. God celebrates over you. God loves you. God cherishes you. God supports you. God helps you. And so the Spirit seals us into our foundation. He fixes us in Christ permanently. Which means no matter what we face, Christ is heading it, uh, facing it head on with us. It's the first half of our big idea this morning. Now the second half. When we're sealed to Jesus, the Spirit empowers us to proclaim life. 
in an antagonistic world. Look at verses 8 through 11. Sorry, 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you, it's to your truth. Uh, I tell you the truth is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. This whole passage is very clear. When you follow Jesus into this world, you follow him into an antagonistic world. The disciples are going on a mission that will threaten their very lives. But the Spirit doesn't just come into our own lives personally. The Spirit comes into the world to convict the world. The Spirit, as Paraclete, is our advocate, our, our advocate amidst a world that can be apathetic towards faith or a world that can be increasingly antagonistic toward faith. In other, world, in other words, when the, when the world presses in against us, when it accuses us of being foolish or archaic or bullheaded or irrelevant or bigoted, when it tells us to keep our faith to ourselves or to hide it away because it has no real truth or impact on reality, when faith is trivialized or pitied, the Spirit advocates for us. It's a courtroom image. The Spirit is the one doing the convicting of the world. The Spirit convicts or proves how the world has missed it, how the world has totally missed it when it comes to three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. But the three things are really about one thing, the gospel. Jesus, he forgives sin. Jesus, he makes us right before God. Jesus has overcome evil and death, and all of this happened because Jesus was crucified for the sake of the world. The world misses it. The world says, nah, it's a fairy tale. It's a nice idea, but it's not true. It has no bearing on reality. And what we want, don't want to miss is that this reaction was just as present in the Gospels as it is today. But it's the Spirit who comes into the world to continue this work of Jesus. Jesus, in his ministry, convicted the world of sins, told the world about righteousness, talked about judgment and condemnation. And the Spirit arrives in his absence and it increases his presence and ministry in the world. It's the Spirit continuing the work of Christ in the world. But, and this is important, it's the Spirit continuing the work of Jesus in and through us. Well, how? Look at verses 12 to 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glory, glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. This is Jesus explaining reality to us. The Spirit lives in us, and the Spirit guides us in truth, declaring to us what Jesus has to say. And we see this immediately in the disciples' lives. Uh, think about the book of Acts. Let's do a quick summary of the book of Acts. The disciples go from hiding out in a room, fearing for their lives, afraid of what's next, to the 
boldly proclaiming Jesus at every opportunity. They stand before the religious elite and call them to repentance. They go into courts and they're not afraid of the judgments of man because they know God has made them righteous. They overcome evil time and time again because the devil has been defeated. And the sort of change we see in the disciples' lives is unexplainable if the Spirit isn't living and active in their lives. There's this supernatural boldness and courage among them. Even their critics recognize it. Look at Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and to pause there, uneducated and common, our community is ridiculously educated, so you you don't have that as an excuse, just as a head up. But uneducated, common men, they were astonished Astonished. How could this be? How do these people who know nothing have this boldness and wisdom and courage to testify about Christ? Now, was it the intention of the disciples to just head out into the world and convict everyone? Was that their primary motivator? I don't think it was. I think it's the intention of Jesus. I think it's the work of Jesus but that the disciples' intention was simply to follow Jesus and, and, and follow where the Spirit leads. Because over and over again, they're primarily proclaiming the gospel. They're primarily proclaiming the life they found by receiving the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They go out into the world and say, eternal life is available forever, but it's also available now. They're taking what Jesus told them and making it known in the places that they live. And they proclaim life in an antagonistic world. And it isn't easy. It's not easy for them. Sometimes they're falsely accused. But it didn't rob them of their confidence because they have the Spirit. Jesus is with them. Sometimes they're thrown in jail, but even there they sing hymns and praise to God because the Spirit has filled them. Jesus is with them. Sometimes they're martyred. But it doesn't dishearten the movement. It just gives it all the more courage because they have the Spirit. Jesus is with them. And this radical transformation in their lives to live bold, public lives of faith is only possible because the Spirit of God has sealed them into Jesus. And as a result, they love Jesus more than they love the world. They love Jesus more than acclaim. They love Jesus more than popularity. They love Jesus more than status. They love Jesus more than safety. And they love Jesus more than comfort. Amen. Got a charismatic in the corner there. (laughs) We can't muster up that sort of work in our lives alone. We can't. This doesn't mean that we have to go out and become belligerent and aggressive you know, with billboards and just sharing our faith, like, aggressively. That's, that's not what's happening here. Rather, the Spirit of God fills us and makes us bold, gentle, and consistent in our witness. If faith conflicts with our day-to-day lives, we hold fast to Jesus, even if it costs us personally, even if it means you might lose work, or it means you have to change careers, or if it means you have to have a difficult conversation with your boss about what you can and can't support. If faith means enduring a difficult relationship, it means you show patience and knowing that God has been infinitely patient with us. If sharing faith puts you outside of a friend group, we accept that position with humility, but we don't restrain our love for our friends. 
If faith conflicts with your, your sexual appetite, you humble yourself and you recognize that your desires are not yet fully reconciled to God and that gratifying these desires will not assure satisfaction in your life. If faith puts you at odds with your family, you don't change what you believe or apologize for what you believe, but you continue to demonstrate love and service and gratitude and thankfulness. If others you identify with as who have faith uh, cause you embarrassment, you don't point the finger at them and say, I'm not like them. You say, yes, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. We share the, the truth of the gospel. I think it could be presented in this way. But this is what the gospel is. You don't stand above them casting judgment. You stand with them, neither uh, condemning or excusing misbehavior. You see, while the, the goal in all of this, in all these things we can face in the world, we are trying to articulate the beauty of the gospel, and we know it's beautiful because the Spirit has come into our lives and pulled us out of the sin and the evil and the hurt that was tearing us apart and has given us life. And so if labels get attached to us, we accept them with humility, knowing that Christ was misunderstood, that Christ was falsely accused. So you don't defend, you just continue to hold fast in truth and life. We can't, we cannot muster that up in our hearts alone. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. It only happens if we've been sealed into Christ by the Spirit, our helper, who will help us in any and every situation. You see, the gospel then, it doesn't promise us smooth sailing through this life. Look at the disciples' lives. They were cast out of synagogues. They were put into jails. They were killed. If you follow Jesus, he's not promising that witnessing to your faith will be easy or that it'll always go well or that it'll be smooth sailing or that you'll get to live a comfortable life or aspire to all of your dreams about what your vocation would have looked like. But the gospel does promise you Jesus and that he'll be better than anything you ever lose for following him. In all of these things, we're not trying to push our views on people. That's a misunderstanding. We're modeling and proclaiming the life Christ has given us, the life of Christ living in us. And it's a life that looks different than the world around us. And so I have to ask, have you experienced the Spirit of God in any of these ways? Have you felt a love for Jesus, a desire to know Him, a desire for Him to return and be present and make all things new? Have you felt adoration for Jesus for all that he's accomplished for us? Have you felt the love of God? Have you felt the love that God has for you because he's adopted you as a son or daughter? Have you had the confidence of being a part of the bride of Christ, God's very spouse? Have you seen God working through you? Have you seen growth? Have you seen a desire growing in you for people to come and know Jesus? Do you find yourself Sharing faith, not out of a burden, but out of joy. Do you find yourself fighting that temptation to hide your faith away and to keep it locked away in just Sunday? Now let me ease some fears. It's easy to set our expectations way too high. Sometimes 
the things we expect the Spirit to do in our lives are not one and the same with how the Spirit is actually described in the Scriptures. Not everyone on this side of eternity will be healed. Not, you know, some will. Not everyone will experience miraculous gifts. Some will. But sometimes we miss just how much the Spirit is at work in our lives because we set our sights and our expectations far too high. And we miss that the Spirit is closer and more involved in the mundane than we realize. And this is why we need community groups. This is why we need Christian friendships and close relationships because we need people to say, I see the Spirit moving in that part of your life. Even if you don't see it, you can trust them. They're saying, I see this. I can see change in your life, even if you're too close and don't see it. But on the other hand, it's easy to set our expectations far too low. You look at some of the miraculous in the Scriptures and you say, ah, that was, that was then, this is now. Or you haven't had strong feelings of God's love, and so you say, well, emotions aren't trustworthy, or I'm not in a, very, a very emotional person. And you're partially right. You're not a very emotional person. But... Uh, while God doesn't want us to dive off into the deep end of emotionalism, God certainly wants to connect with us emotionally. Why would he have created emotions if they were not for us to experience him? God wants us to feel love for him. He wants us to also feel his love, but he also wants love to be expressed in obedience. It's feeling and action and everything in between. And sometimes I think we hold back and we set our sights lower because we're afraid. We're afraid of being disappointed. We're afraid that if we pray a prayer like, God, I want to experience your love more and more, we're afraid we might not experience it. And then what does that say about God? But back to Romans 5.5, 5, Paul says, Our hope does not put us to shame. Our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Our hope is in Christ and what he's accomplished and the hope of eternity and glory and enjoying God forever. And that will not put us to shame because here and now we experience the promise and the taste of that through the Spirit. And so we just have to ask, God, make it tangible. Give me more and more. And so I know, I know, like this has been a fairly heady sermon, but the Spirit is not meant for our heads alone. The Spirit abides in our hearts and pours and pours and pours the love of God into our hearts. Which means this, no matter what we've experienced of the Spirit, there is always more to experience still. Because God's love is boundless and unending and free. Lastly, it's far too easy to write this off. The Spirit, nah, it's too far out there. This is all getting a little bit weird. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I'll admit, this is outside of the realm of normal. Let me ask you, how's normal working out for you? How's normal working out for you? The Spirit is love. A love that you will not find in any person. And it's available to everyone who repents and believes in the gospel. You can experience the Spirit, this profound love God has for His creation and for people, but for you by name. If you repent, you say, 
I've lived a life contrary to the ways of God. I've held beliefs about God that need to change. And then you believe, you believe that Jesus is really who he claimed to be. And then you receive this promise of the filling of the Spirit. And God has no desire to hold this back from you. Jesus himself says in Luke eleven thirteen, If then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? just have to ask and you'll receive this good gift from our Heavenly Father which surpasses everything we could ever seek after in this world. And that is why the Spirit is our mortar. God wants us to have the Spirit in abundance because the Spirit seals us into our foundation with Christ. The Spirit makes us one with Christ. And when we're sealed, the Spirit fills us so that we can proclaim life so that we can proclaim the gospel in an antagonistic world.